Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get at this. Half the children in this country needing surgery are facing wait times, which by far exceed recommendations for treatment. That was a story in the Globe and Mail earlier this week. This could have serious and lifelong consequences. Pediatric surgical chiefs of Canada speak about an immense strain experienced by pediatric facilities, including overcrowded hospitals, record emergency waits, and delayed diagnosis and treatment. This is for the kids of Canada. And this, of course, also mirrors the reality of healthcare generally across Canada, as adults as well are facing major delays in diagnoses, treatment, and surgical interventions. We're joined by Emily Grunewald, President and CEO of the Children's Healthcare Canada and Executive Director of Pediatric Chairs of Canada. Ms. Grunewald, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Glad you could join us. Thank you. Dr. Alika Lafontaine is back with us, President of the Canadian Medical Association and the first Indigenous CMA President. Uh, Dr. Lafontaine, good to have you with us. And uh, Friday was National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, and here you are, the first Indigenous CMA President. We are making progress. Yeah, we absolutely are, and great to be back. Yeah, good to talk to you. Let's start with the kids. Ms. Grunewald, what are Canada's children facing, children who require surgeries and are being left to suffer? What's it like for them? You know, I think every day matters um, in the life of a child, and Canadians imagine a healthcare system that will be there for their kids when they need, they need it the most. But the fact is, right now, Many children um, across the country from coast to coast are waiting longer for essential procedures or services than their adult peers. So whether it's, for example, community-based mental health services, diagnostics, child development services, or surgeries, um, kids are waiting beyond recommended windows for intervention. And that has the potential, of course, for lifelong impact. How young? Sorry, can you say how, that again? How young are they? How, how, you know, how are the young, are younger the youngest? Oh, goodness. Well, in pediatrics, um, we care for children typically between birth and 18 years of age. So really, it could be anywhere along that continuum where children um, are waiting for essential services. Do we have numbers of children or approximations? And is the situation worse in some regions of Canada than others? Yeah, we do have some numbers. So, for example, right now we know um, in mental health, for example, over 100,000 children across the country are waiting for community-based mental health services. Some of them are waiting as long as two and a half years for those services. And can you imagine oh being a child or, or a caregiver, a parent of a, of a child or youth in crisis and facing that type of wait? With respect to surgical wait times, again, we know that um, there are over... So we measured in eight children's hospitals of 13, and there's over 20,000 children in those eight children's hospitals um, waiting for surgical interventions. And again, some of them are waiting longer than 12 months. So 
Every day that passes beyond the window means that a child's condition might be getting more complicated. It might be more difficult to treat. Um, those children could be waiting in discomfort or pain, yeah. and their outcomes are compromised. So these these issues matter, and, and when it comes to kids, like I said, every day matters in the life of a child. 20,000 kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big number, and that's only about half of the centers reporting. And you just touched on it. I was just thinking about that. The pain they must be experiencing or the just the discomfort of, of not being treated, maybe not being yeah. diagnosed. That's, that's just an intolerable reality, isn't it? It is difficult. And it, it impacts um, a lot of different aspects of their life, right? When yeah. you're in discomfort or if you're in pain, yeah. um, it's difficult to focus in an academic setting. It's difficult to, to want to be in a and a play date or to be attending different family events or, you know, participating in after school sports or extracurriculars. So it really has quite a wide range of impacts beyond just the physical health outcomes. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the confidence level that could suffer as well because kids are influenced by everything that happens to them. We all are, but children don't have a long life experience to draw on. And, uh, and, and confidence is something that, um, that is fragile at the best of times. So if you're a child and you're suffering and struggling, yeah, it's, it's Dr. LaFontaine, when you hear this, I mean, you're aware of this, but when you hear Ms. Grunewald just repeat what I'm sure you're aware of, what, how do you react to that? Well, you know, we, we've known for a long time that there's been a, a proportion of kids that have been on wait lists. And depending on where you look, you know, um, a lot of numbers are that a third of kids on wait lists are waiting outside of the window. That's now gone up to close to two-thirds. And, you know, when, when I listen to what's being said about this, I, I think about the families, you know. Like, taking care of a sick child is a very, very heavy responsibility. And so that impacts the parents. That affects their ability to work and participate in society. It also affects the other kids in the family. You know, so so one person that's sick in your family and having to take care of them impacts a, a whole family unit, and that affects communities, that affects, you know, the economy. And I, I think as you start to look outward, you know, the, the scale of this problem becomes much more clear. Yeah. Here's the fundamental journalistic question. Why? You know, I, I'd say that it's from lack of investment. We, we hear a lot of talk right now about reform. But reform tends to look at doing things the same way, but moving around the puzzle pieces. In reality, we, we haven't invested in these programs that have a long lead up to, to building up. I mean, I'm an anesthesiologist. I, I work on, on kids that are, that are less than 10 for sure. But uh, there are subspecialties that require additional training beyond what I even went through during my, my years of medical school and, and residency. And so it, it takes a long time to build up capacity for these things. And Although we've known that these problems have kind of hovered around, it's really in the last couple of years that we've seen it spike up to levels that are now intolerable. And I think this is why you now hear calls for addressing these sorts of problems. But it's really because we didn't design our way into the future that we knew was coming. Okay. COVID bears some responsibility, I'm sure. But we can't use it as an excuse, can we? No, I don't think we can. COVID was really a moment that stress test our system, you know, and I, I think we should have confidence in Canadians that our health system survived COVID. Um, but in, in the same sense, we, we can now see clearly the, the cracks and gaps that exist. You know, all these decisions that have happened over decades are what really led us to this crisis. And we, we can't use the same sort of thinking. You know, when a hospital is running at 120%, what that literally means is that it has 20% more patients in it than it has capacity. 
you know, this is the reason why patients are, you know, being assessed in hallways and being assessed in waiting rooms, why there's no mm-hmm. privacy, you know, why in some cases there's no dignity in the evaluation of, of you know, medical conditions. And, you know, when it, that, that moves into children, you know, a part of our society that, that we've always committed to protecting, you know, providing additional support, you know, we can, we can really see how, how desperate we are right now for reinvestment, but the right kind of reinvestment in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about hallway medicine, and that's something that is very difficult for a patient, for the families, for their friends, for the, for the medical community who is administering the patient. But let me ask you to just uh, take us a little further, a little deeper into the system, uh, Dr. Lafontaine. So here we are, second day of October 2022. What's the situation facing adult patients in this country today as far as diagnoses of health issues and uh, medical actions such as surgeries are concerned? Is it better than it was at the beginning of the year? Is it worse? Uh, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Where are we? You know, I, I think it's it's apparent to anyone who's been in the system that, that wait times are, are far beyond what's reasonable right now. You know, we, we have adult patients who are seeing emergency rooms waiting 20-plus hours. I, I believe that's the same sort of, sort of experience for a parent coming with their child, coming and being seen in a pediatric emerge. You know, they're, they're not spared from this either. We know that surgeries had a precipitous drop when we closed down capacity in the system to redirect it towards dealing with acute patients who were sick during the pandemic. You know, now that that's coming back, we, we still have these waves. And, you know, Emily talked about in uh, the news story that was published in The Globe about how there's these cycles within medicine where you have peaks and valleys of demand. But the, the reality of what's happening right now is the, the demand doesn't seem to be valleying. You know, it just seems to be at its peak at all times. And, you know, it's, it's a new reality that we're moving into. Now, the, the really wonderful thing is that we have providers and people in the health system that are there for the right reasons and really want to do well for patients and by patients. And I think if we have investments and agreements with, you know, our 13 health systems across the country, we can lean into creating a better environment, but that's, that's going to need us to do things different than what we did in the past. And, you know, we've advocated for decreasing fragmentation through collaboration across the country. You know, I, I still believe that that's, that's the solution to the problems that we have right now. Yeah, you can't, you know, making the same mistake over and over and expecting the situation to improve, that's insanity. Absolutely. So, Ms. Grunwald, uh, what you told us earlier is so disturbing. I've just been thinking about this. 20,000 kids waiting for surgeries and all the other kids who are waiting for diagnosis and waiting for treatments for non-surgical interventions. But they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. Um, do think, uh, Dr. Lafontaine said just before the break, it's time to do things differently. What, what do you suggest? How do we get past this? How do we return to some sense of we have it under control? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my organizations actually partnered with UNICEF Canada and CIHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, about a year and a half ago to think about, you know, what do we need to do differently to turn the tide? Um, I'm not sure if your listeners would know this, but Canada actually ranks 30th out of 38 international countries when it comes to children's physical health and 31st out of 38 countries with respect to their mental health. Um, not I good. I think that's a pretty sobering, <laughs> not sobering good. statistic. So. So, you know, how do we how do we turn the corner? Um, our metrics have been dropping for several years. We've gone from a top 10 place now down to 31st um, out of 38. So, you know, these four organizations, we engage stakeholders across the country, youth, parents, researchers, teachers, social service workers, healthcare professionals, you name it. 
um, to develop a plan, um, and it really depends on some interlinked priorities. What we've learned is that, um, you know, choosing where we're going to, like a piecemeal approach to making investments hasn't served us well and is not going to get us the outcomes that we want to measurably improve how things look for kids. So, you know, we're imagining a strategy that has three prongs. We need to think about how do we how do we enable better beginnings for moms and newborns? How do we give families the best start possible? Then we need to start thinking about those sickest children who require hospitalized care. How do we advance precision medicine um, in those institutions? And then for the kids who are living with chronic disease or neurodiversity or disabilities, how do we how do we transition them from vulnerable to thriving? So we um, we believe strongly that the time has come for the federal government to show leadership and develop a pan-Canadian strategy for children. And it would be a strategy that has specific measures, timelines, um, accountability network, um, metrics, so that we can start to see progress consistently across the country in all domains of children's health and well-being. No time to waste, right? No time to waste. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. If a child... Or, Dr. LaFontaine, an adult is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness like cancer. In today's world, on the 2nd of October, 2022, that still doesn't mean that child or that adult is going to receive timely treatment, or am I mistaken? No, no, you're you're spot on there. And I I think just to maybe even take a step back to to what was just said, you know, we talk about doing things differently. We've never leaned in and actually created these structures where we could not just have a strategy, but true collaboration. You know, I I work in Living Grand Prairie. I'm two and a half hours away from Fort St. John. A person gets worked up, whether an adult or a child, often when they cross that border and come to Alberta, we have to repeat all the tests because we can't actually access the information. That's ridiculous. So uh, imagine the amount of duplication that occurs, the amount of redundancy. You know, and then piled on top of that is, is increased burden on people who are providing the care to do things other than care itself. For sure. You know, there's a lot of things that that we end up doing within the system that not only waste patients' time, but don't bring them closer to what they need when they see providers. Do you also, does it also happen in the healthcare system, I'll ask you both this, where the healthcare professional says, I I know what needs to be done. It's not exactly according to the book here, but I'm going to do what needs to be done. Does that happen? You know, we we call that in in medicine workarounds. You know, uh, rules are written a certain way. How do we work around them in order to provide best care? And what do we know for sure with medicine that's true across all research is that when you have a strong relationship with a provider Mm -hmm. where you can trust and communicate with them and they see you as a patient and hear you as a patient, you almost always have better outcomes. And, you know, we we talked about insanity. We we keep on focusing, I think, in this country on how to cut costs at the expense of everything else. And if you're talking about leaning in and doing something different, you know, if we can build that experience around that relationship, you know, create more time for people to do the things that they do well, we can move beyond a lot of these discussions that, that we're currently trapped in into a new way of providing health care. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm in the wheel when I talk about health care in this country. We just, we've been in this wheel for years, and all we do is get it just turn around, 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 around we go. And uh, I can tell you, six months from now, we'll be back in the wheel when we talk about it again. Ms. Grimald, are you, uh, are you optimistic that things will change for the better? And I mean this because I'm just wondering whether you run into the uh, status quo uh, opposition. We've always done it this way. There's always been a blue piece of paper on top of the pile, and there will always be a blue piece of paper, and don't t- ask me to change it to yellow. Uh, do you run into that sort of thinking? Um, I, I think, well, yeah. I, I think I we think, do, hey? Yeah. Ms. Grunwald, what do you say? Yeah, I agree. I think we do as well, but 
um, you know, I think there's growing awareness that we need a plan for Canada's kids. Oh, I had the opportunity be. last week to speak to the House of Commons. They're, they have, um, they're undertaking a study on children's health, and it was remarkable to see support across all parties that status quo is not an option, that we must do better. Yeah. Um, and it starts today. So I am optimistic. I know that change takes time, but I do believe that this is an all-hands-on-deck approach, right? To, to Alika's point, we need to lean in. Everyone has a role to play, whether it's organizations like mine, organizations like the CMA, or different levels of government. Yeah. This is uh, this needs to be a shared priority if we're going to make a meaningful change. Well, I can only uh, I'll end the segment with this. Imagine if it got worse. We can't even go there. We can't afford to go there in more ways than one. We haven't spoken to our first guest today for some time, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Um, Mr. Giroux has a report on house price assessment and the household's capacity to borrow and pay for their homes in selected cities across Canada. He presented that to the uh, Senate Banking Committee. Also, I mean, this one got my attention. We talk a lot about money. We talk about, well, recession. Yeah, that's becoming the story. But interest rates and um, inflation. The parliamentary budget officer told um, the parliament that um, the impact of rising interest rates will double government debt charges within four years. Mr. Giroux is back with you. How are you, my friend? I'm good. And you? I'm just, (laughs) I'm looking at a world and trying to get a handle on it. Well, yes, it can be a bit depressing. It's a very, very unusual world that we live in. And the last months have just been uh, madness on the news cycle. But I'm really interested in, uh, well, so many of the things that you do and report on. But let me ask you about the report on house price assessment and a household's capacity to borrow and pay for the house. You've done that in selected cities in this country. What's the uh, What's the story here? Well, the story is that one of very high prices. That's not uh, that's not news. But we we did a, a report on affordability of housing uh, earlier this year, much earlier, when the prices were close to their peak, and then prices started going down in some markets. Well, in, in most markets, I would say. At the same time, interest rates are increasing. So we wanted to know what's the overall impact for those who have to borrow, like most of us have to borrow to buy a house, especially a first house. So what's the impact for the average household, considering the small decline in prices that we see in our market, but also the increase in interest rates? And we find that affordability has decreased, despite despite the fact that the, the house prices have gone down. The fact that interest rates have gone up means that for average households, buying an average house is less affordable than it was before prices started coming down because of the offsetting impact of increasing interest rates. And and things uh, are expected to get slightly worse if interest rates continue to rise, as is very widely expected over the next couple of months. Yeah, that's scary stuff. All right, so the the whole story, the whole issue of housing in this country has so many people concerned. So many people paid, uh, or at least you know, are, took out mortgages for massive amounts of money for as far as their budgets are concerned. And uh, now the the story is that the house prices are going to come down up to twenty three percent over the next year or so. That is concerning. You also you mentioned interest rates. You uh, you told the Senate Banking Committee, Mr. Giroux, about the impact of rising interest rates on government debt charges. Please share that with us. 
Yeah, so you know, senators asked me at the Senate Banking Committee what would be the impact on debt servicing charge, so the interest cost that the government has to pay on its own debt uh, as a result of rising interest rates. And I told senators that compared to this year, in four years' time, we should expect these interest charges to double from $22, $23 billion a year to slightly over $46 billion a year because of interest rates increasing and also the stock of debt being much bigger than it was a few years ago. So these two factors combined will make it so that uh, the government will be spending about $46 billion in interest cost alone each and every year. Um, and it's it's already at about $23, $22, 24000000000 billion, depending on the exact year that you're looking at. But it's going to almost double, well, more than double, depending on the year on which you compare that. And that's, that's a very significant expenditure. Yeah, and that's before we get to the principal. Oh, yeah, that's just the interest rates. That's not uh, paying the, paying down the, the debt itself. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. just just the interest. Yeah, you told them as well that this, this money, the $46 billion, would supersede the military budget of this country. And speaking of the military, I'd like to ask you about uh, the military expenditures Canada's obligation is to spend 2% of GDP on the military to meet our NATO obligations. In June of this year, you said that uh, Canada would need to spend an additional $75 billion over the next five years to reach that 2% of GDP. That's a lot of money, but does, do the, does the interest rate calculation you just mentioned to us, does that change that, that amount? And well, it's a question of choice. So if uh, the government decided to abide by that commitment that it made uh, a long time ago to its NATO country allies, it would mean that uh, just this year, the government would need to spend an additional $18 billion in the current fiscal year. Whether the interest rate, uh, the debt servicing costs factor into that, of course, it makes making decisions like this one a bit more difficult because the more you spend on debt servicing costs, it means the less you have on other things. So it, it makes these trade-offs when it comes to government expenditures that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And But the NATO target is, is rather generous. Not only, well, it, it says 2%, but a country can include uh, the amounts it spends on its veterans under uh, military expenditures. So in fact, when we think about military expenditures in the context of reaching the NATO spending, a government could decide to enrich veterans' benefits and that would count towards the 2% of military spending. Well, I think we should enrich the veterans' benefits um, and pensions. Uh, and we do have our obligations to keep our military strong and, and able to defend us. What about this public debt calculator that you have? Well, that's a tool that we put on our website to, to allow Canadians and Parliament hands to see what happens to the debt servicing costs under different scenarios. So we publish our own scenarios regarding interest rates, but people may have different interest rate trajectories in mind. So they can go to our website and have a look at how much it would mean in the debt servicing costs. Should there be a worse than expected outcome when it comes to interest rates? Or if they think interest rates will stabilize at the current level or go down, they can have a look and see what it would do to the debt servicing costs that the federal government will have to pay going forward on an annual basis. So it's a tool for parliamentarians and Canadians to look at what public expenditures on servicing the federal debt 
what they could be looking like under various uh, various scenarios, various assumptions. Now, that's a great tool to have, and people are very interested in government spending and uh, what it's going to cost us, what programs would potentially cost us. You also have something called the Ready Reckoner. What's that? Uh, that's uh, a fancy name or not so fancy name to uh, for a tool that, again, if Canadians or parliamentarians want to see an increase in the tax first, second, third tax rates, or the GST, or taxes on spirits and tobacco, how much that would generate an increase or a decrease, how much revenues would be foregone by decreasing the tax rates, and the bracket, the threshold at which the, at which these, uh, these rates apply, then they can have a look at how much it would mean in terms of government revenues increasing or decreasing. So if, for example, political parties want to start preparing their platforms, or Canadians want to draft an alternative budget, which was which would be more to their liking, they can have a, a look at that and see how much revenues the government would gain or would lose under different scenarios. It helps people get an idea of the trade-offs the government is faced with when it decides to increase or lower tax rates um, in terms of revenues that have to be foregone or, or gained. Uh, it's a rough approximation, of course. It depends, always depends on the specific design and the implementation and, and how aggressive or not the tax authorities are with, with recovering these uh, monies. But it's, it's intended to give a, an idea to parliamentarians and Canadians about how much change in tax rates would yield in, in revenue. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've spoken with our next guest. On a number of occasions on this program, he's from Ottawa-Piscat, and that's the First Nations community in northern Ontario, which has probably gotten more news coverage um, than any other over the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, and generally because of the stresses and the challenges that are being faced in the community. We generally became aware, I think initially, when the crisis developed with young people and suicide concerns in Ottawa Piscat. And um, we talked with, uh, with Adrian Sutherland about life in the community. He's grown up there, lives there. And he's shared a lot of information with us. We're going to do some of that this time. Piece of a music, piece of a song called Walk With Me, <clears throat> pardon me, which Adrian co-wrote with Serena Ryder in 2019, which has become very much um, synonymous with the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is on Friday. And, and the story here, the background, let me just give you a little bit of background. It's the result of school teacher Steve Pritchard of Beechburg, Ontario, speaking with his grade six and seven students about ideas relating to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. They had heard Adrian Sutherland's song, Walk With Me, and they reached out to him. Adrian Sutherland, I'm a big fan of his music, and... Um, Walk With Me, from the 2021 Juno-nominated album, When the Magic Hits. How are you, Adrian? 
Oh, I'm doing good, uh, uh, Roy. Pretty good. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's been been a while since we last talked. And uh, when your manager, Rosanna Schick, who is, um, was involved as producer for this, this project as well, made me aware, I listened to the song, I heard the story, and I knew I had to talk to you. So, in your words, how did this all develop to, to the point of the video and, and what's going on now? How did it begin for you? Well, uh, if we back it up a little bit, I, I mean, that's, that, that, that song is um, such a beautiful song. I think uh, it's one of my favorite songs that um, I was able to work on. Of course, it's a co-write with Serena Ryder. And um, it's, I I just, we were talking about different things. How can we get this song out and, and, you know, try to get more reach? Um, And, you know, there's always challenges when it comes to trying to get your music out there and and challenges around getting it heard and and pushing it through radio and all that stuff. So there were some constraints with certain types of music or songs. So so anyway, so we fast forward to uh, earlier this year, when we heard from a teacher from uh, Beachburg Public School reached out to us about this idea of them wanting to uh, make a video for that song and they wanted it to be student driven um, and it, the, the message was going to be obviously about reconciliation because for me that song, it really is about uh, reconciliation in a lot of ways. Uh, for me, um, so walking together, I think, uh, and and just really supporting each other and, and trying to understand each other um, on this journey that we're on, uh, that we call life. You know, it, it is. I, I found it really so. Um I don't want to use the word interesting, but it was extremely interesting that you get grade six and seven kids who hear the song and with their teacher reach out to you because that song means something to them as well. And they're looking at truth and reconciliation in the classroom environment, and it fits for them. So um, out of this has come a video. By the way, I have posted the video to my Twitter feed at The Roy Green Show. It's there at the Roy Green Show. You can also go to adriansutherlandmusic.com, adriansutherlandmusic.com. It's, it's, it's really quite touching that these kids would do that. And uh, I, I just have the, the – um, there's a project of the murals involved as well. There's so much going on, tracing hands and feet and the creation of a heart with posters and statements reflecting the 94 calls to action. It's all there. How difficult was it to do that, to get it all done? Well, <clears throat> from the beginning, I know we made it clear that we wanted to support the school and the students in any way that we could. Um, we sent somebody in to film and capture all of these activities. And I was so, honestly, I was so surprised to see what they captured uh, when I first saw the the rough draft. And for me, it's, it's, it's such a, um, it impacted me in a way that I don't think any other video has ever impacted me. I just, it just really... Um, it's heart touching. Uh, it was really emotional. Uh, I, you know, I teared up the first couple of times uh, when I watched it, and I know many others have said the same thing. It's just so, um, I don't know, it's, it's so powerful, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. And I'm trying to figure out 
<laughs> I'm trying to understand. Like, wow. I mean, it, the song itself is is a really, really nice song. But then when you when you put those images in there, um, it just uh, takes it to a different place. And uh, for me, I think it's I think it has a lot to do with the children, especially non-indigenous children, um, sort of taking that um, um, taking that step towards wanting to. Um, take action, you know, in in terms of reconciliation, and 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 in the images, I, it's it's really just uh, I don't even know how to describe it. No, I know I know exactly I know exactly what you're doing because when I was trying to describe it, it's an emotional experience when you watch the video. It really is, and then you know the story and you're trying to describe it. And I'm thinking, how would I tell this to somebody who doesn't know anything about it? And I and I tried to do that, but before we started talking to you, and I, and I've I, I just found it difficult because there's so much, but it means a great deal. So it's a tremendous project. It's great to know the kids were involved, and the kids want to get involved. And it's the as you said, it's the non-indigenous kids who felt it was necessary, and it was something they was important to them to do. Let me ask you some of the. We have a few minutes here. Uh, we've talked about your community of Attawapiskat, which, as I said at the beginning of the segment, has been in the news so many times, and um, about the difficulties of life at Attawapiskat. Talk to us again, please, about life in your community and other northern First Nations communities. Is it still the reality that most have substandard housing and an absence of reliable and constant flow of clean water? Yeah, it's still um, it's still a reality. You know, we um, we have um, we're very underserviced. Um, we still have a huge shortage of housing. Uh, we still don't have safe drinking water from our taps. Um, even the healthcare is a challenge. You know, um, it's just my family and I recently to give you an example. I've been trying to receive dental care um, for our kids, and it's just, it's just been an almost impossible. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to to fly to the nearest city, and uh, you know, it's it's for somebody like me. Um, I find it extremely difficult, and it's such a huge financial burden for for my family and I to to, to have to do that. Um, when these services should be provided. I mean, we're Canadians, we have a right to receive uh, safe, timely health care, just like any other Canadian would. Um, It's frustrating, you know. I I don't even know what to say anymore or or what to do um, other than try to speak up and, you know, write letters and and, and make people aware of uh, some of the the challenges we face up there. You know, it could really... really (laughs) Beat you down. I don't know how how else to describe it, and it does feel defeating at times. It really does. And uh, um, but I keep getting up every day, and and uh, I look to my children for strength, and my grandchildren, and then, you know I want to give them the best I can give them as a father and grandfather. So keep me going. Yeah, we hear politicians talk a lot, promise a lot, and then. Still, I come on the air with you, and again, still you don't have clean, safe drinking water. And the housing, uh, you've talked to us about it before, substandard, and there's all these promises that are made and all the commitments are made. It's time to follow up on them. But let me ask you, when you you talk about your kids and your grandkids, 
What's the impact on on their lives? Because children and the safety and the well-being and the mental health of children at Attawapiskat was at the center of the um, much of the national conversation in 2016. What's life like for the kids? Well, um, I mean, I know they get a lot of love from their families. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I hear you for sure. I mean, um, it's hard because there's not a lot going on up there for the kids. You know, there there's no youth center. Um, there's no organized sports. Um, you know, there's not a lot of support in place. I think for these types of um, activities for our children. I know COVID has really exacerbated that um, um, for the past two years. So I think. I hope, and I and I think people are trying to kind of you know get their butts in gear now and try to provide programming for our kids um, and make sure that they have access to these different things like sports and arts, um, uh, you know, and, and other things like cultural uh, access, like being able to go on the land and learn about their culture or learn about survival or hunting or, or language. Like, as parents and as community members, I think that responsibility really falls on us. And I always tell people, we got to do more. You know, we got to do more for these kids. We can't keep putting up barriers. Um, you know, there's so much funding out there we could access, but the issues always, sometimes uh, the inappropriate behaviors that exist at the leadership level or even at, uh, you know, in the program heads uh, um, that run the programs, you know, I've done so much work over the years, and it's just me, and I've been able to access a limited, a very limited amount of funds to try to take youth out and do stuff. And, and uh, you know, you're just one person. You burn out, and, uh, you know, most funding agencies don't want to give someone like me any, any you know, funds to, to go out and do this kind of work because the way it's set up is you have to flow it through the, the tribal councils or the First Nations uh, which is which is the wrong way to do it because there's a lot of inappropriate thing, things going on at that level and, and there's a lot of uh, barriers being put up for people like myself uh, who are actually trying to make a difference and do the work. So it's very frustrating um, when you know that <clears throat> certain people that sit at the head of those tables are hindering this this work, you know, and this important work for our young people. And we have we have a youth center that was being built um, <clears throat> which was a, a huge huge uh, exciting news for our community the whole place has to be torn down um, the contractor got up and left when COVID was in full uh, full blown mode uh, they left, the whole place got moldy, they didn't seal up the building they didn't seal the roof, they didn't do nothing and this is the contractors that the feds uh, contract to do these these capital projects and all the reserves cross country so tell me you know, where like who is responsible for having oversight over these, over these projects. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Because I, I've read that this... Sorry, but it goes on with the water purification plants as well. They build it too often, and then they leave, and it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that over and over. Can you just... I only have less than a minute, Adrian, but what does truth and reconciliation mean to you? Well, I think one perfect example is uh, these kids, you know. They really took uh, truth and reconciliation to a whole new level. Um, and uh, that's a tough question. And I think that's, th- these are the people I look to as, as I look up to these kids. You know what I mean? They're, they're, 
their role models, and they've taken this huge step um, in taking taking matters into their own hands and and um, and doing something so wonderful. And I think that's what the message I would leave with other people as well. Like people ask, what can we do? I don't know the the answer to that question other than we got to do something. We have to do something. And these kids, I tell you, they took it to a whole okay. different level and they really did something with it. We need help as far as energy is concerned. You know that. We spoke yesterday with our uh, good friend, Dr. Thierry Bro, Professor Thierry Bro. From Sciences Po in Paris, uh, the energy expert, the former head of energy security for the entire nation of France, and uh, Dr. Bro is still concerned about massive uh, energy shortfalls and uh, blackouts on a daily basis in Europe, potentially. So it's a, it's a huge concern. And then a couple of days ago, well, about a week ago, Belgium decided it was going to shut down. This, see, this, my brain fries when I hear things like this. Europe's in an energy crisis, energy deficit. And then Belgium decides it's going to close down a nuclear plant, energy plant, which is providing 10% of the energy for the whole country. How does that even remotely begin to make sense? And then sometimes I look at our country and I think, well, what are we doing? Let's get at this with our good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, thank you for joining us. You, you, uh, there was a petition that we sent to House of Commons petition. More than 10,000 people signed it. And uh, they're calling on the federal government to include nuclear energy within the green bond framework. So tell us, please, first of all, what's the green bond uh, framework? And, and what was the, how excited was the federal government about in, including you? Roy, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I mean, this green bond framework, essentially, it's a means to mobilize low-cost capital so that we can build the kind of large infrastructure projects necessary to enable an energy transition. If you think about any large piece of infrastructure we have, be it a bridge or a large hydro dam, you know, these are projects that are capital-intensive, take sometimes a decade to build. If you have low-interest capital, it's affordable. If you're paying 10% interest on that capital, it's not. Um, so, you know, this is a vehicle used around the world to mobilize that, that low-cost capital. And, you know, nuclear, for some strange reason, despite its proven climate um, benefits and other environmental benefits, was excluded um, in the federal legislation. You know, and that's thanks to our former Greenpeace uh, Environment and Climate Change Minister, Mr. Stephen Gilbo, also Christia Freeland, for whatever reason, went along with this. Um, we had this petition. It was the number two most popular petition in the economy and finance uh, department. Um, as you mentioned, 10,000 signatures. Um, and we were calling for nuclear to be included precisely so we can enable that low-cost capital to help get these vital bits of infrastructure built. Um, and, you know, we got a response to that petition. The government's mandated to give us a written response. Um, it was not encouraging, and it actually referenced Belgium as a country which um, explicitly excludes nuclear from their green bond. And you just mentioned, you know, how insane that decision That's, was. That is just, I mean, that is thought challenged. That is fundamental thought challenged. It really is, you know, and it's, it's not in keeping with modern developments in green finance. Um, the EU, um, as a block, just this July, included nuclear within their green uh, sustainable finance taxonomy, making it eligible for that kind of low-cost capital. Um, and South Korea. Um, the president of South Korea just visited Canada a week and a half ago. Um, their country just included it. So, you know, Canada has a choice um, to remain, you know, at the back of the pack um, with a lot of countries with very perplexing energy pol uh, policies, um, or it can lead. 
And we really should lead because we are a tier one nuclear nation. Nuclear energy is the second largest source of electricity in our grid. It is, of course, carbon free. Really, um, you know, this has been extensively looked at the whole life cycle from the mining to the building of the power plants, the decommissioning. It is the lowest source of CO2 electricity um, out there. So, again, really shocking um, that it's not included. That is not based on any scientific measure. It's based on old biases and, unfortunately, environmental groups um, who have a lot of influence within the green finance world. I just want to read a, a, a few two lines from the release you sent me. And it uh, references what you just said, but it, I, I, I need to read it because I don't understand it as well as you do. The role of nuclear energy, I do understand the role of nuclear energy, but you wrote, in our climate response should not be controversial. Canadian uranium used in nuclear reactors all over the world to produce carbon-free electricity displaces a jaw-dropping 260 megatons of CO2 per year, offsetting fully one-third of Canada's 730 megatons of all-sector annual emissions. That's all I'm going to read. But all I have to do is read that, and I'm thinking, why isn't the federal government saying, this is perfect, this is exactly what we're trying to accomplish, this is what we've been telling you we're trying to accomplish, but oh no. It is bizarre, particularly because, you know, the West really abandoned a lot of their uranium mining, uranium refining, uranium enrichment. We have a huge opportunity to step into that. You know, Canada is the number three producer of uranium in the world. We could quickly jump up to number two. There's no reason that we shouldn't. You know, people think of the oil sands as the kind of bete noir of, you know, Canadian climate crimes. Um, you know, that's about 80 megatons per year added by the oil patch. Again, we offset 260 megatons, you know, more than three times that with, uh, with the uranium that's used in our domestic fleet as well as the global fleet around the world, which displaces coal and gas burning. So it's, it's unambiguous. Again, if, it's, if it wasn't for following um, the kind of uh, biases and, and sort of misinformation um, of our decision makers, um, this is this is a real clear decision. I will note that those numbers. I mean, I, I uh, this is back in the envelope math that I did. This isn't coming from the industry itself. You, one really um, is puzzled, I think, at the lack of of communications, and I think it speaks to the fact that the whole you know nuclear sector um, you know almost suffers from a kind of battered wife syndrome where it's just not representing itself. You know, so it's strange that our, you know, volunteer nonprofit organization are the ones that are bringing these talking points forward. But it's it's because, you know, of the vital role that nuclear plays yeah. uh, here and around the world in, in our climate response, but also in, you know, being a, a real positive economic force for this country. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a there's a climate uh, uh, component and there's a financial component at a time when the world is really concerned about slipping into global recession. Uh, it just it makes very little sense to me. It actually makes no sense to me. But the province of Ontario has taken a bit of a different position, and I think Canadians for Nuclear Energy had a lot to do with that. Tell us what uh, what Ontario is doing. So, a really exciting announcement, um, which again is in line with a policy report that we released in July. As far as we know, it was not being discussed seriously. Ontario, you know, faced a crisis. Um, our independent systems operator said, uh, oops, our bad. We actually anticipate we're going to need a lot more generation on the grid. Coincidentally, when the Pickering nuclear station was scheduled to come offline. To give your listeners some context, Pickering produces more electricity um, than all of our hydroelectric resources at Niagara Falls. And that was going to suddenly come offline in 2025. So we were advocating for a life extension of the plant to give us time to refurbish the plant. 
Um, you know, Canda reactors, which is our national nuclear technology, has a 60 to 80 year lifespan, but that requires a midlife refurbishment, swapping out of the major parts. And we're doing that at other nuclear plants in New Brunswick and our two big plants in Ontario. We said, listen, in the context of rapidly increasing natural gas prices, the global energy crisis, um, and a electrification you know, uh, boom, it makes no sense to close this plant down. Luckily, the government listened. I would say Ontario now has the most pro-nuclear government um, in the Western world. And, uh, you know, that's an amazing thing because, you know, we know every dollar that we invest in refurbishing these reactors generates a dollar forty in GDP growth. Because rather than tossing our money across the border and buying frack natural gas, which is getting ever more expensive, and burning it in plants that use a skeleton workforce of, you know, 50 workers per plant, we're investing that in cheap Canadian uranium um, and nuclear facilities which employ thousands of high-skilled blue-collar and STEM professionals who go on to spend their good wages in their local economy. Um, it's just an enormous uh, economic stimulus. It's really the right thing to be doing in this, these troubled financial times. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 